Good morning. Last week we uh, continued our epic adventure through Exodus with God's chosen people, the Israelites. And Exodus 17 was really this awesome, uh, just a great chapter, right? We had the people complaining and they were whining to Moses. And, and so God said, I'm going to provide water for the people. So Moses took his staff and he struck the rock and water comes gushing out. It's a wonderful miracle. Then the next thing you have is the Amalekites and there's a battle going on. And Moses has to, once again, he has to take his staff and hold it above his head. And he can't do it alone. So the people come around him and they hold his arms and they, they lift him up. And as long as he has the staff up, the people of God win the battle. And eventually they triumph over Amalekites. Well, they build an altar there, an altar of remembrance. And they say that God is our banner. It's epic. Right? It's an awesome, awesome passage of scripture. Well, I was excited after that. I thought, well, if that was... If that was 17, then 18, the next chapter, this is going to be a doozy. It's going to be an awesome. So, so, so here I'm going to give you a quick abridged summary of what's going to happen today. Get ready for it on the edge of your seat. I know you're excited, all right? Chapter 18, here's what happens. Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law, he brings his family back. Then they sacrifice and have a party. And then they institute a form of government. Hi, <laughs> right? Ron, thank you so much. Took the miracle passage, took the battle, right, you know. I'm, jo- I'm joking, I'm joking, of course, this is the word of God. How could the inspired, infallible word of our Lord ever be boring? How could even passages like this, which are unique, how could they ever bore us? Exodus 18 is unique because it serves as a sort of interlude between these events. Right after this, we're going to have the Ten Plague, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the, the Ten Commandments, and we're going to have the wilderness wanderings and all these wonderful things coming up. But here we have an interlude. And almost every commentary I read, I went to for help, takes this in a different way. So that I thought, well, Charles Spurgeon, I'll go to Charles Spurgeon, I'll find a, a, a sermon that he preached on Exodus 18. There wasn't one. Uh, so I went to John Piper. There wasn't one. I finally found Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor and teacher I, I like, and he, he says this about Exodus 18. He says, this is one of those chapters which you can look at in a lot of different ways, like a mountain peak. And if you've ever been to the mountains, you, you know the mountains look one way in the distance, and as you get closer, they look different. And I thought, thank you, Kevin. That's, <laughs> that's a great way. You know, that really helps me out as I look at Exodus 18. So I pray that my interpretation of the mountain, that is Exodus 18, uh, would be beneficial to all of us today, that God would use his word, even an interlude part, uh, to bless us as we go forward. As always, I like to give a little road map for the note takers to, uh, to help you out as you follow along generally. So if you're a note taker, here's uh, where we're going to come. This is a large chunk of text, so we're not going to be able to go through it verse by verse, so uh, this will help you follow along. There's, there's three problems that I see within the text that, that relate to us and our, our sin nature, And that's what we're going to look at. So the first is in 18, verses 1 through 6. And this is going to focus on what it means to live in the family of God. Why? Because we don't always live together well. The next part is 18, 7 through 12. And that's going to focus on what it means to love in the family of God. Why? Because we don't always love each other very well. And the third is 18, 13 through 27. That's going to focus on what it means to, to lead in the family of God because we're not always led well and we don't always see ourselves as leaders, not all of us. So it's pretty simple, I hope. 
Uh, and with that path before us, I'm going to read Exodus 18. So if you want to follow along, I believe the, yeah, they're up there. Exodus 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home. Along with her two sons, the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced. For all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, his father-in-law, before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for your people? Why do you sit alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to Jethro, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses, his father-in-law, said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Lord Jesus, as we open your word, I ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, that we might receive it, and that we might leave this place loving you more than we did before. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, I'm a sucker for YouTube videos, for, for sappy YouTube videos. 
And I saw this one recently that came up on my little news feed, my Facebook news feed, and it was one of a soldier coming back home after a long deployment. I'm sure you've seen things like this before. Well, his son was at a karate match, and they had the son tied, you know, a, a, he's blinded, he's got a little tie around his face there, a blindfold, and the soldier walks in, and you're sitting there, oh, okay, this is great. You know, and the kid's punching his, his, his sensei, and he's going, come on, come on, come on, you know, hit harder, hit harder. Well, they switch out his teacher, his karate teacher, with the dad. And he starts punching his dad's hands, and he goes, come on, hit harder, hit harder, son. And the son goes, you know, dad, hit harder, son. And he takes off the blindfold, and he's embraced his father. And it's just, oh, you know, tear. Oh, yes, that's amazing. Yes, you know. And I, and it, I feel it. And, and as I'm reading this passage, I'm like, this is, this is what's happening. He's, you know, Moses is seeing his two boys and his wife, and it's just this epic reunion. And then the more I, I sort of dug a little deeper, I, I was like, well, maybe that's not what's happening. Maybe something, maybe, maybe it's not this happy picture for Moses and his two boys and his wife. You see, Zipporah had been sent away for some reason. And the text doesn't explicitly say, oh, she was sent away for this reason or that reason. And the sons were sent away for some reason. And there's really two good options for why they were sent away. The first one is the simplest. And it's that Moses knew that what he was doing with Pharaoh was extremely dangerous. And that Pharaoh could come after him or come after his wife and his kids. And so he sent them away to Jethro and said, take care of them. They're going to stay with you for a couple months. We're going to finish up what's going on here in Egypt. And then I'm going to come back and get them. That's the simplest one. If that's the case, happy reunion. right? Now the second thing, some commentators, however, think that they were sent away due to the bizarre incident back in Exodus 4. If you remember the incident, they're at an inn, and they have failed to circumcise one of their boys, most likely Eliezer. They have failed to circumcise him. They have not obeyed God. And so the Bible says that God was coming to kill Moses. So before he can do that, Zipporah takes a knife, circumcises her son, and God's wrath turns away, but Zipporah is angry. Is angry. And so maybe they're sent away in sort of an awkward Anger, contentious mode. Whatever the case, it's been months since they've seen each other. And so I like to imagine the first option, where they come and hug, and it's this, maybe it is a little awkward between him and Zipporah. Maybe that's the incident, but, but they're there, and they finally see each other, and they embrace, and it's beautiful. Moses needs to have his family with him, because Moses is about to lead a people, and the first way you show leadership is in your own family. And so the people need to see it, the family needs to see it, the poor needs to see it, the boys need to see their father lead. Well, it's odd. It's an odd thing to start. The other odd thing about the reunion is the fact that after this passage, Zipporah and the two boys are basically never mentioned ever again. Okay? That's odd. They disappear from the scripture. In fact, the only really important thing about the sons seems to be mentioned right here and right now, and it's their names. Listen to this, verse 3. One son was named Gershom, which sounds like the Hebrew for a foreigner there. And what, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in the foreign land. This means he's reminding, listen, we're Israelites, we're not Egyptians, I'm not a Midianite, this is not our home, we're foreigners here. And the other name was Eliezer, which means my God is helper, for he said, my father's God was my helper, he saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. My heart, it's at this point where my heart goes out to pastor's kids, right? Um, being in the congregation, my dad's back there, right? He's a pastor's kid. And you can probably relate with Gershom and Eliezer a little bit. 
being in the shadow of the great Moses or the great pastor. And you had to grow up in that and all these expectations that people would have on the PKs, the preacher's kids. Their eyes would be upon you. Did you hear about Gershom? Did you hear what he did? That kid just can't act right. You know, let's not mention him anywhere. Like, let's not bring him up in the Bible anywhere else. That, that kid's not going to be anything. Eliezer, right? Finally, to muddy the waters even more for Moses' poor family, we have Jethro, the father-in-law. If you didn't catch that from the text, right? Father-in-law, father-in-law Jethro. He's there, and he's a priest of Midian. Likely a descendant of one of Abraham's other children through Keturah, named Midian. You can see that in Genesis 25. Because of this connection with Abraham, we, we really don't have any reason to doubt that he's not a true priest, because this is before the Aaronic priesthood has been established. So we have Jethro here who's worshiping, who's a true priest, but he's not going to stay with them. At the end of this chapter, he leaves, he goes back. He's not going to join the people of God. So in the first six verses, there's some oddities. Okay. We can at least agree there's some oddities within Moses' family, and, and you would think that wouldn't be the case because he's Moses. He's the prophet of Yahweh. Shouldn't his family be like the go-to people? We're going to see that a not-so-perfect family portrait is there for God's people as well. The Israelites are made up of complainers and cowards and cantankerous attitudes towards Moses, towards God, these are God's people, and yet they're, they're whiny, right? It's hard, it's hard to read the Old Testament and really go, I'm rooting for these Israelites. They're great people, right? They tried to kill Moses in the last chapter. They wanted to, they wanted to stone him because of the water. So Moses' family serves as a nice mirror for the Israelites and really for us. What about us in 2019? We're, we're sort of a messy, ragtag bunch, aren't we? The church of God, the family of God. What's... What's the solution then? What can we glean from the first six verses here? How do we live together well as messy, sinful people in God's family? As I thought about this, I thought, you know what? This is simple. I need to find a picture of the perfect family. And where else would I find a picture of the perfect family than the good book, right? It's easy, simple. The Bible has to have a picture of the perfect family. So we're going to look here. You know, we start with the first family, Adam and Eve. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh is so romantic, right? Everything's great. Of course, there's that stuff with the snake, and, well, that's awkward. Um, Cain and Abel, and so we go to the next family, right? Father Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. You know the song. Many sons had Father Abraham, and then he lied about his wife being his sister twice, then almost killed Isaac because God told him to. And then he sent Agar, Hagar, who was his wife, concubine into the wilderness with his other son Ishmael, where they almost died. David. King David, the perfect. This has to be it, right? Of course, there's that stuff with Bathsheba and Absalom, yada, yada, yada. How on earth are we to learn about what it means to be a family when we can't even find a perfect family in the Bible? Well, I'll be honest with you, I did find one that was pretty good. I did find a family that was pretty good. If you go to the New Testament in the book of Acts, we find God's new covenant family, the church, right? You find them with the Holy Spirit gathered in one place. He comes upon them at Pentecost. And after this, there's thousands who hear the gospel and they're converted. 
Thousands. The people of God have this miraculous unity. Acts 4.32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. I thought, finally, I found it. I found, I found it. I found it. You know, you read books now where people are like, you know what the problem with the church is? We just have to get back to the Acts church. We have to get back to that perfect church. Well, if you read the next chapter over, Ananias and Sapphira are there, and they, they're causing troubles again. So we went from everything was perfect, everyone had one heart and one soul, and the next chapter over, even that church is not perfect. So I finally gave up. <laughs> I gave up, and I came to the conclusion that the perfect family doesn't exist. And you know why it doesn't exist? Because we have a serious sin problem. We have a sin problem that affects the way we live together. It affected Moses' family. It affected the Israelites. It affected David and Abraham, all of them. They were all sinful, and so they didn't have a perfect family. So what can we learn from these messy families in the Bible? from this brief mention of Moses' family, which we're, they're never going to talk about again. How do we solve our sin problem with regards to living together as the family of God? Well, as with any sin issue, I think you know the answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. Thinking of our own church family here as brothers and sisters in Christ, we all know it's not perfect. Many of you have grown up in this church, you've grown up in other churches, you know the church is not perfect. We don't always get along. Sometimes we rub against each other the wrong way. And yet each Sunday, here we are, together, united under God, just like we learned last week, Exodus 17, God is our banner. And so at the end of the day, we come back. We come back together, united as brothers and sisters in Christ, because we can be honest with each other. We can unmask together. We come together and we say, you know what, we did screw up this week. You know what? I didn't love my brother and my sister correctly. I'm going to come together and we're going to worship together. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. First go, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. There's a singer and a songwriter and an artist and all sorts of stuff he does that Ron and I both love named Andrew Peterson. And he tells the story on one of his albums of a time where he had a really serious issue with somebody in the church. And it was Communion Sunday, the next Sunday, and he knew this passage. He didn't want to come before God with hatred in his heart towards somebody. So he called the person up, he went to the person's house, he made up with them, and the next day, the next Sunday, they went together to the altar together. And they walked up, and they took communion together. And you know what he said? He said it was like kicking the devil in the teeth. You see, last week we celebrated communion together and we shook the gates of hell. The devil hates it when God's people come together despite our sin, despite our diversity, despite our messiness. When we come together, united under the banner of Christ, we kick the devil in the teeth and we say, be gone, be gone. Our Savior lives. He's forgiven us. You see, God knew on this side of heaven that his people could never live together perfectly in harmony, so he sent his Son to live with us. The Holy Spirit to live in us. And so how do we live together? Well, it's by grace. It's by grace alone. 
It's by God's mercy, his free grace alone. Then we can love each other. Then we can live together. Well, I also love that God didn't sugarcoat these families because it gives me hope for my own. (laughs) It gives us hope that God can use these crooked sticks to draw his straight lines as he always has done. Use us in mighty, awesome, powerful ways. Well, that's the first part of the equation. I want to move to the next half there. We're going to move pretty quickly. Moving on to Exodus 18, 7 through 12, we find that if we want to live together well, then we have to actually love each other well as well. As the church, the family of God, many of us tend to tolerate each other, but do we actually love one another or like, even like each other? I read, uh, I read John 13, 35, and Jesus says this. He says, by this... Everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And I think, why did he have to say that? How can he expect sinful people to come together day in and day out and love each other? Why does that have to be the test of a true disciple? Jesus, why did you have to say that? Doesn't he know? Doesn't Jesus know how hard it is to love some of these church people? Of course he knows. The cross is the proof that he knows how hard it is to love some of these people. He had to go to the cross to to forgive us of our sins. That's how hard it was for us to get to him. Christ died for us. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So if God can love me that much, surely I could love these church people. Surely I could forgive these church people. Think now back to the Israelites who were constantly complaining, whining. They they complained last chapter. They're going to keep it up. Moses is going to come down from the mountain. He's only been gone, what, 40 days? And they've already got a golden calf set up? How hard was it for Moses to love those people, these stubborn people, and yet God calls them back every single time? Notwithstanding all of God's goodness, even in the text we find that it's an outsider. A Midianite is the one praising God here. Where the people of God are complaining, a Midianite, an outsider, is rejoicing. Going back to the text, I think there are three important helps here as we seek to love each other in God's family and to love as Christ loves us. So here we go, verse 7. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. I want you to notice two things Moses does. He first bows, he shows respect, and secondly, he kisses him, he shows affection. So love and respect are the two things he shows to this outsider, his father-in-law. I read a book with my wife when we were getting married. I'm sure some of you have read it. It's called Love and Respect. Guess what the book's about? Love and respect. Very good title, right? And it's this idea that you can never truly love each other if you're not loving and respecting each other. This mutual cycle of love and respect between a a husband and a wife. And so we need this in the church. If If you love God, but you do not honor him, that's sort of a free grace antinomianism that could, that could crop up. And if you honor God, but you don't love him, then you're like the older son. And it's this fear-based works sort of salvation you've, you've got turning up here. And so we need love and respect, not only towards God, but as we interact with each other. So as we live together, we need to ask God to give us a healthy balance of this. We also don't need to be afraid to be affectionate with one another. Now, I'm not saying, my guy friends here, I need a holy kiss. 
when we greet each other. Okay, I'm not asking for that. A bro hug, I'll take a bro hug. I'll take a full-on hug, right? We can show affection for each other. We love each other. And we need to show the world that. If you see somebody in public, give them a hug, right? Let the world see that we love each other, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Christians should be quick to love, slow to anger, overflowing with grace. Why? Because that's how our Father is. That's how our Father is. Second, verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro's response, even as an outsider, is one of joyous praise. So what do we do? We tell stories. We tell testimonies. We give our testimonies. We tell others about what God has done in our lives. And then we celebrate each other. We rejoice about what God's doing in the church. That's why Ron gives the, gives the building update so we can encourage one another. Yeah, we're getting that building. It's going to be great. Oh, it's going to be wonderful, right? We tell of God's mercies. We tell of God's grace in our lives. How's God going to use these testimonies? Listen to what Jethro says. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. It strengthens his faith. It strengthens what he thought of Yahweh. It strengthens him as a person and the true sheep will hear and rejoice that news. They'll hear the testimony of God's people and they'll rejoice with us. Romans 12, 9 through 10. Love must be sincere. Detest what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Outdo ourselves in honoring one another. And the final thing they do, final thing Jethro and Moses do is they celebrate. Right? They sacrifice. They throw a feast. They throw a party. What do we do? That means we throw parties. We need to celebrate God's people should be joyous people. We should, you know, have you looked in your communique? There's anniversaries and birthdays. We celebrate milestones. Another year on God's earth. Praise the Lord. Another year of faithfulness between a husband and wife. Praise God. We celebrate those milestones. We love each other. We laugh together. We weep together. We are the body. We are brothers and sisters. So we love each other. C.S. Lewis has this famous quote. I'm sure some of you have heard it. He says this, To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung out and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around your hobbies and your little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket... Safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So the Christian life involves risk, and it involves loving, not knowing if the person is going to return that love. It involves giving out grace, not expecting anything in return. 1 John 4, 19-21 says, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and their sister. So ultimately, what's our first step in the love process? It's loving God. So we pray, Lord, increase our love for Christ, increase our love for you, and so that love will pour out of us to others. And we can't help but love others. We can't help but give grace to one another. Well, finally, the final step here is Exodus 18, 13 through 27. We live together, we love together, 
And all of this is held together by the way we are led and the way we lead together. Starting at verse 13, the next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. His father-in-law comes to him, and he sees this odd thing happening where, where from sunup to sundown, Moses is working alone. He's doing it all. He's judging for the people. Jethro, because he, you see, because he likes Moses, because he loves Moses, he has concern for Moses' well-being. So he comes to him, what you are doing is not good. <laughs> Very blunt. Very, very, very quick, what you're doing, this is not good. You've got to quit doing what you're doing. Someone once said, if I had to do it all over again, I'd be too tired. And a farmer once observed, the hardest thing about milking cows is that they never stay milked. You see, work is hard. And this is, of course, all traced back to the garden where sin came into the world. It all comes back to sin. It all comes back. Work is hard. And so getting along, loving each other, living together, being led is hard because of sin. And leadership itself is tough. Specifically here in Moses' case, generally with the church, spiritual leadership is even tougher. Did you know 250 pastors quit their ministries every month? 250 pastors quit every month. I'm not sure if you've noticed this or not, but I don't know if you know this, but First Presbyterian Church, it has a leadership problem. I don't know if you noticed, the main problem with our head pastor, Ron Brown, is he, he can't clone himself. He hasn't figured it out yet. We've been trying to figure it out. See, there's only one of Ron. And if he didn't have the deacons, if God had not ordained this system of government, if he didn't have elders to serve alongside him, to, to love him, to encourage him, to take care of him, we would, it, it would be a disaster. And so God has lovingly placed leaders over us to take care of us. So as we look at the problem within the text, the problem in our daily lives, how do we learn to be led and how do we learn to lead? Here's, here's quick things. We need to be acutely aware of our leader's burdens. I think it's utterly bonkers that it takes an outsider to realize there's an, a problem. <laughs> Aaron, Moses' brother, is there. All the elders are there. Everyone's there and nobody thinks anything's wrong with this picture of Moses doing all the work. And so if we're not acutely aware of our elders, of our leaders' burdens, if we're not acutely aware of that, if we're not asking them how they're doing, if we're not encouraging them, if we're not walking alongside them, then they're going to be like Moses here, and they're going to be exhausted. They're going to be absolutely exhausted. Listen to Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they watch over your souls as those who must give an account. To this end, allow them to lead with joy, not with grief, for that would be of no advantage to you. Did you catch the key words there? Obey, submit, meaning listen, trust their leadership, trust that God has set them in a place of authority over you, Lord, that he's watching them and taking care of them, working their lives. Don't make their difficulties hard. Hug them, call them, encourage them, serve them. Second thing notice here is that they share the load. They list the qualifications of the types of men that God's seeking here. And it says this, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. It doesn't say, I want the smartest, the quickest, the best looking, the richest. It doesn't give all these other things. It says, I want the moral guys. I want the guys who have a heart for the Lord. I want the guys who know the scriptures. And so the first and easiest way to share the load is to lead your families. Lead your families well at home. Start at the root. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Children, obey your parents. And you can't do any of that unless the Lord is leading you first. You see that? Jesus has to be your leader at home. Secondly, I want you to volunteer in the church. I want you to help lead in the church. I know nursery is not for everybody. You don't have to do nursery. We can do Sunday school. You could host a small group at your house. If you're physically able, we need you. We desperately need you in the body of Christ. There's a lot of work to be done. Finally, I want to turn to my beloved hobbits. If you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, my little hobbits, Frodo has the, the ring of power. And he has to go up to Mount Doom. And he has to throw the ring of power into the fires of Mount Doom. And there's this moment where he collapses. He's right at the base of the mountain. He collapses. And if he were alone, that'd be it. But he's not alone. He has Samwise Gamgee, his companion, his trusted friend, whose task is not to carry the ring, but his task is to carry Frodo. And he says, Mr. Frodo, I cannot carry the ring, but I can carry you. And so maybe your task is not to be an elder or to be a deacon or to be a Sunday school teacher. Maybe your task is to carry those leaders, to carry their burdens, to carry them, to encourage them to say, is there anything I can get, get, get for you? Is there anything I can do for you? What can I pray for you this week? Well, the passage ends with Moses listening to Jethro's advice and they establish all these elders and it's, it's wonderful. It works out for a time being and it eases Moses's burden. Where do we go from here? I can promise you that for the rest of our lives on this earth, we are still going to have trouble living together. But that's okay. Because Jesus has promised to live with us even to the end of the age. Just like Moses, when we have a dispute between ourselves, where do we go? The judge. The ultimate judge. We go to the feet of Jesus and we go as sinners in need of God's grace and we ask his forgiveness. Then we go to the Lord's table and we kick the devil in the teeth. And we, we proclaim the cross of Christ victorious. Well, I can also promise you that many in this room, maybe even today, will fail at loving each other. So when that happens, I want you to take comfort knowing that Jesus loves you perfectly. He's ready to forgive you. And then I want you to celebrate that grace and love by coming together and saying, I'm sorry I didn't love you the way Christ loved me. I'm sorry, wife, that I didn't love you as Christ loved the church. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Because Christ has forgiven me. And of course, I can promise you that you're going to be stubborn, just like I'm stubborn. And just like the Israelites were stubborn, we're going to be hard to lead, Ron. We're going to be hard to lead. All us like sheep have gone astray. There's going to be struggles, and all of that's okay, because ultimately Jesus is our leader, and he knows how to get his sheep back. And he knows how to call those home who have led, gone led astray. He won't lose any of his sheep. He's the great shepherd. He's the head of the church, which is his body. He's the chief cornerstone, which we're being built up into. He's the prophet, the priest, the king. He's the savior. So when we fail to lead, when we fail to be led, we repent and we follow again. If you're not part of that family, if you're not part of this family that I've spoken of today, then I want to invite you to join us. Sometimes we bite. Sometimes we kick and scream. But we're getting better. <laughs> By God's grace, we're getting better. We love each other. Not perfectly, but we're getting better by God's grace. And of course, we have lots of work to be done, so we need you. 
We also have something the world can never give you. We have hope, endless hope. So if you'd like to be forgiven, you'd like to be set free, and you'd like to be a part of our dysfunctional family, then the good news for you today is that our Father's house has many rooms. And there's one that could have your name on it. Cry out to Jesus. Follow him. He's our leader. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. May it be so. Let's pray.